0: Does anyone know who this is? I'd almost bet my life you wouldn't know him, but he was in his own time quite famous. This is Don Partridge. And again, probably some of you are looking very blank because even the name doesn't mean anything now. Um, So at 15 years old, this guy left home to become a professional thief. I don't know how bad he was at it, but that didn't actually work out for him. So he decided, because he couldn't make being a thief work, he decided to get a job. And he ended up getting around 40 of them, each one uh, failing and it not working out. Um, So he uh, started to look around for alternatives. And um, he came to national attention... Well, when this uh, uh, youngster decided that he'd, he'd made some sort of handmade wings for himself and decided, if you know Hammersmith Bridge in London, he decided to jump off that to try and fly. Um, and so the media lapped that up um, as you may uh, be aware, um, his wings aren't being sold in ASDA, so they weren't actually successful. Um, but I couldn't get any pictures of his crash landing. Uh, but he again started to uh, rise in the sort of the national awareness. Um, so what he did in the end, he took up busking. Uh, he took up busking uh, around London uh, and around the country, and he was phenomenal at busking. Um, I don't know what metrics you use to measure the success or failure of Buskin, uh, but this guy had an incredible career. So he formed a number of bands. He got quite a few recording contracts. He had a top 10 hit. He travelled England in a gypsy caravan, so um, uh, I find that that, um, uh, rather endearing. Um, He lived in a barge for a while. Um, He busked around England and Wales and Scotland. He busked around Western Europe, um, and he even went round Canada and America. He moved to Sweden for a while on a permanent basis. He hired out the Albert Hall with a couple of thousand other buskers and they invited people in and then they shared the profits from that, which I love the idea that the Royal Albert Hall uh, rented themselves out to buskers. And if they can do it to the buskers, I'm like, do you know what? Anyone might be able to get hold of that. Um, And he even performed at the Olympic Games. What an incredible chap this guy uh, was. Um, So, but for me... Uh, he is only on my radar because um, there is this track called Take Five. Um, you may not know the name of it, but you will be probably familiar with the tune if it ever uh, comes up. And it's uh, most famously played by a jazz pianist called Dave Brubeck. Um And it's a uh, wonderful jazz piece. Um, and um, there is this Take Five, which is uh, very much... Uh, Uh, A phrase of take it easy, enjoy yourselves. You know, if someone says take five, it's relax. And so Dave Brubeck created this uh, uh, masterpiece. But then Don took this jazz masterpiece and he put words to it. Um, And so there's words to this really crazy jazz piece. And you think that is uh, pretty phenomenal. Well, um, and you can find this on YouTube. So the, the words are Don Partridge's, but there is this Grammy Award-winning singer called Al Giroux. And in 1976, he took Dave Brubeck's um, uh, uh, sort of music, he took Don Partridge's words... And he sings this absolutely incredible scat version of a jazz piece. And it is absolutely glorious. You won't find it in the charts any day soon because it's a little bit out there and left field. But it is certainly something, if you've got an idle moment, to chase up um, Al-Jerou's version of Take 5. This morning... I am taking my cue. Uh, Peter and I went to the ELIM Leadership Summit, which is kind of the annual general meeting for ELIM um, up in Harrogate. Um, And there was a lot of uh, very good speakers. And one of them uh, had something to say. And I just wanted to use what he said to take us on a little bit of a journey. And uh, we're going to transform like Al Giroux did and Don Partridge did, the idea of take five and give it a little bit of new significance. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 4. It says this in Mark chapter 4. We're going to read lots of little bits of Scripture today. So Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Again Jesus said, What shall we say the kingdom of God like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Is it like a mustard seed? um, It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed uh, you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. In chapter 4, there is a very clear pattern. Um, Jesus spends the time explaining what the kingdom of God is like. What are its characteristics? When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what can we expect it to look like? So the first parable he uses is in chapter 4 is the uh, parable of the sower. And we find that this seed goes out and it doesn't always find fertile ground. But, and it's often overlooked, it's often all the things that can take away God's word, but at the end, there's this glorious... Um, finale, where this seed, this innocuous-looking seed, creates a hundredfold crop. Then he talks about a parable of a lamp, and he says, you know, when you accept the kingdom of God, it doesn't just fizzle out or burn with uh, the power of a one-watt candle, but it is Abundance. It comes in small, but comes out abundantly and, and uh, uh, in massive quantities. In the next one, in the parable of the growing seed, we find that the farmer just plants the seed, wanders off, and then mysteriously and wondrously, the crop comes And he harvests what he didn't work to create. There is this mystery that Jesus is saying, that the kingdom of God comes and it's like a seed and then it wanders off and then it suddenly bears all this fruit um, that can be enjoyed. In the parable we've just read, the very, very same expectations are perpetuated. Jesus is making the same point again and again. He says, the kingdom of God doesn't look all that to begin with. It is unimpressive. When you see it, it is like a seed. You don't uh, gasp and coo at a seed. It is something insignificant that you throw away, that you trample underfoot. But... Jesus makes very clear that again and again, the kingdom of God, while it looks like a seed to begin with and it is unremarkable, it becomes incredible, becomes something flourishing, becomes something luxuriant. It soon takes over the whole land and all sorts of people are blessed as it comes. And then, right at the end of chapter 4... Just in case you thought that these were just words, we have an illustration of it. And you probably know the story. Jesus has gone out in the boat and his fishermen, uh, disciples are taking care of it, sailing uh, the ship on the Sea of Galilee. And then suddenly a storm hits and all these experienced sailors, all these uh, uh, um, experienced fishermen are suddenly scared out of their wits. This is the storm that's going to capsize the boat. And basically, they see their life flash before their eyes. This is going to be the end of it. There is no hope. And so uh, they sort of panic and come to Jesus and said, look, we're all going to die. And Jesus brings the kingdom of God. I've never seen a single person change a weather front. We've certainly prayed hard when we have an outreach and we don't want it to rain on our barbecue, but I've never seen someone stand in front of the clouds and see a whole weather front disappear. But that is what Jesus comes. This person, this man, this uh, individual who was not much to look at stands in the boat, which is a rock to and forth, and he commands the waves to steal he commands the winds to stop, and this uh, storm that threatened their lives calms down. And we find this beautiful juxtaposition of Jesus, just a man, a a man who uh, could die, a man who wasn't um, impressive to look at. He brings the kingdom of God to that weather front. And all the violence and drama stops. And we find Jesus illustrating what the kingdom of God does. It doesn't look like anything to begin with. It is easy to scoff and say nothing can come of that. But when it comes, no one can deny its power. And so we find in Mark 4, Mark very deliberately stringing these parables together and putting this episode with the storm at the end. So you know that the kingdom of God is a lot Um, is a lot like this and not like that. That it is something that you would scoff at and ridicule at the beginning, but at the end, it is something um, that will sweep you off your feet. And then Mark chapter five happens. Turn to uh, Mark chapter five, verse one. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." So right after this teaching of the kingdom of God, right after this illustration of Jesus through the storm, we get people meeting Jesus. And now we're going to find out what the kingdom of God does with them. And we find this immensely troubled man of the Gerasenes. This uh, um, land um, just sort of beyond uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish kingdom. And he was heartrendingly isolated his behavior and antics mean that he couldn't live near anyone he couldn't live in society he couldn't live down Bolney court with the rest of us because he was too agitated and disturbed he uh was tormented and destructive and when people came upon him he would throw off any way that they tried to subdue him. And he was uh, a storm in a man. His uh, demonic activity that he suffered uh, just caused all sorts of grief in him and touched the lives of any that encountered him. But then the kingdom of God steps in front. Then the kingdom of God steps out the boat... Then Jesus comes into the land of the Galileans, and he brings the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is a seed. Jesus doesn't look like anything impressive. He is not a uh, a all singing and dancing. Anti demonic ministry. He is not uh, an impressive sort of medical care facility. He is not uh, uh, some sort of uh, impressive um, sort of restraints industry that will take this guy out, that will um, do anything like that. Instead, this is just a man. It's just a humble rabbi with a few disciples who have just encountered a terrible storm. And then the kingdom of God comes and it brings change and it brings beautiful harmony. And this guy that didn't know what it was to be in his right mind suddenly discovers uh, the kingdom of God and everything changes. The demons are sent out and he uh, dresses himself He finds calmness and peace. And more than that, he finds purpose because Jesus sends him out to say, share what you've encountered. Tell others how the kingdom of God has touched your life. And we find this illustration of the kingdom of God in this uh, troubled man in the Gerasenes. You've got a Bible turned to verse 25 of Mark 5. It says this. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I wonder if anyone can identify with the next bit. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she had grown worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. So we've had this troubled guy. In the amongst the gravestones. Next up is a sick lady. She has been exploited by all the quacks and professionals around her. She has spent all her money trying to solve this uh, problem of the bleeding. She has been ruined by the medical profession. She has been made worse by their endeavors. And now, this woman who knew this constant bleeding for so long was in a place of poverty. She was in a place of exclusion, and she was in a place of embarrassment. Here is someone that is the definition of vulnerable and on the outside. You would encounter her, and your heart would go out to her because there seemed very little hope. In her desperation, not even when Jesus looks and I, um, I love the fact that this works. You know, this woman who was probably feeling all sorts of shame and uh, uh, just uh, being down on her luck and like nothing ever works. And she just reaches out, perhaps hoping that the rabbi won't turn round, hoping that this um, speaker won't see her. She just touches his cloak And the kingdom of God comes in because it doesn't look like what we expect. We expect a healing to come when Jesus declares something or when something incredible happens or when a great prayer. But this woman in desperation and secrecy and embarrassment just touches the cloak. The kingdom of God comes into her life. And this uh, terrible um, affliction, this constant bleeding this thing that had excluded her from society, this thing that had troubled her, that she'd spent all her money on, suddenly it is made whole. And she is given relief from everything that troubled her. The kingdom of God came like a seed and flourished like a great oak. And it's a beautiful thing. But look in verse 35 for the next one. It says this, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother this teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And Finally, we are treated to the climax of chapter 5. We are introduced to a dead young person, all that life not lived, all those prospects suddenly brought to a halt, all the anguish of her family and household, all the grief that comes with someone passing away. And her father, who is a natural enemy to Jesus, he is part of the religious um, Uh, the established religious elite. He's the one uh, that would often come uh, into conflict with Jesus because Jesus was teaching stuff that was new and liberating and vibrant and seemed to cast away some of the restrictions of the Old Testament that was their bread and butter. Jesus was doing all sorts of stuff that was disturbing the status quo, but this guy Jairus... He looked at Jesus, and I think he saw a seed. He saw the seed of the kingdom of God. He didn't expect the kingdom of God to look like that, but he was desperate. He needed something to hold on to He needed some reason to hope. And so Jesus comes into this house where a dead person is. Suddenly becomes completely unclean. And Jesus seems to be good at upsetting all sorts of ceremonial law. And so he goes into the bedroom of this uh, young lady who has passed away, who has given up to this illness. And he has compassion on her. And he brings relief. And it is weird because the daughter doesn't express faith. The daughter is not in a position to ask for help. And yet Jesus breaks in like the kingdom of God to take something that was dead and finished and new life comes in. And uh, she wakes up and she is hungry. And you can imagine everyone just having their jaws drop down and their hearts leap and suddenly going, this is the kingdom of God. We didn't realise that it would look like this, but this is it. Everything has changed. There are all sorts of blessings that I did not expect that comes from it. Each of these incredible encounters is proof of what Jesus taught in chapter 4. The kingdom of God does not come with ostentatious pomp and ceremony. Jesus doesn't come with heralds blowing trumpets. He doesn't come with um, some sort of uh, 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 leaflet drop that comes before him. He doesn't come with sort of TV adverts and blimps in the sky saying he's arriving. This is just a guy who uh, sort um, sort of takes this unexpected path through the land of his forefathers, and again and again, he comes across people that often the, uh, uh, the established religious guys would have just overlooked. But Jesus is the kingdom of God and he's all about unexpected. He is all about doing things differently. He is all about looking like a seed and then bringing in the kingdom of God that will bless and bless and bless this humble, ordinary-looking rabbi comes in and changes life after life after life. And he brings it through these subtle moves. And he brings freedom to the troubled man in the Gerasenes. He brings health to the woman that had bled for 12 years. And he brings actual, physical, restorative life to a young lady that had passed Away. These are all beautiful illustrations of the truths in chapter 4. They take chapter 5 by storm. Chapter 5 is this beautiful account again and again of Jesus meeting people who take five and do something glorious. And Mark encourages us to look at Jesus accordingly. Mark encourages us to look at Jesus and come with expectation. Mark encourages us to go, you know what? This kingdom of God, it sounds pretty good. This kingdom of God, I want to hear more. This kingdom of God, I need to reach out to and find it. This humble, gentle saviour who seems to have a love of the outsider, seems to do things of giant redwood proportions. Something that just brings blessing on blessing on blessing. And he doesn't look like anything impressive. He doesn't look like a massive uh, religious ceremony. He doesn't look like a crazy church meeting. He is just one guy and yet everything changes. And there is this invitation, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and expect change. Come to Jesus and expect him to do something. It may not be what you expect, but it will be something marvellous and beautiful. But, well, chapter 5. It's beautiful. While I, everyone, I'd encourage everyone, take chapter 5. Take 5 as the way to go forward. Chapter 6 happens. And chapter 6 is not the thing that you want to be remembered for. If you are going to take anything from today, you need to take 5 and not 6. Because Mark would bring us a warning. You see, just as going to Jesus with open hands can bring incredible blessing. When you do the opposite, something sad happens. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to, the, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he, has e- that he even does miracles? Listen to these words. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So we have this teaching in the chapter 4. We have this wonderful, uh, rabble-rising parables about the kingdom of God starts like a seed and then it comes in like a giant redwood. That it looks inadequate, but it looks at the end of it as something that just blesses and blesses and blesses. And now Jesus is going to his hometown. This is the place that... um, He grew up, surely of all the places on earth, Jesus would find a welcome in his hometown amongst his family and friends amongst his extended family. Surely this will be a hero's welcome where this guy will come in and they will say, finally he's come home. Let's have a ticker tape parade. Let's get that open uh, air double-decker bus and parade him down for this is one of our own. But that's not what happens. All that anticipation that builds up at the announcement that Jesus is coming home, it fades away very quickly. They look at him, this ordinary man, and they hear his difficult new words, and they hesitate because they've heard these weird stories about miracles. And they find it all hard to take in. Why do they find it hard to take in? They find it hard to take in because they know Jesus. They grew up with him. They uh, worked alongside him. There are some of them that may have commissioned him to work for them. He may have built their fences and sheds and what other things made of wood that a carpenter would make in the first century. I was trying to come up with a long list, but um, I couldn't quite remember uh, uh, much else. So this carpenter that they knew that they commissioned, that they may have argued about the price with something on, this carpenter was now teaching incredible truths and bringing miracles, and they couldn't get past their familiarity. We know Jesus. He built the shed in my back garden. The pagoda I have, that's that's Jesus. He nailed in some of that. They know his old mum. We know Mary. Who's this joker? We know Mary. We know that um, uh, that she makes some very fine cookies, gets cross with our kids, and uh, needs a hip replacement. We know, Mary, how can this guy be anything remarkable? We know, Mary, we know his brothers and sisters. We know that uh, his brothers are always up to no good and that his uh, uh, um, sisters are excellent in what they get up to. We know his family. We know his mum. We know him. There is no way this guy is anything new. We grew up with him. (coughs) This knowledge meant that these guys had no faith. They had no expectation. They didn't come to Jesus with open hands of expectation because they were like, no, we know who this is. They'd already made an assessment. They said, talks of crazy new teaching and wonderful healings, that must be wrong. And so no sick lady rushes to him, just hoping to grab the hem of his coat. No desperate father just ignores all social protocol and fall on his knees and asks Jesus to heal his daughter. No one asks him for anything, because this is Jesus the carpenter who made the fence out the back. Jesus has an extensive healing, ministry, again and again. He just heals everyone, he's me. But it suddenly all dries up before this familiarity, before this contempt, before this, we know who you are and you are not that. As we go through Mark's book, as we read chapters four, five and six, I really hope that we take six's warning and that we take five. because you see, it's really easy for us. When we pray, it is really easy to remember that we've done it a thousand times before and not seen any results. It is really easy to think, I've prayed before, I know it doesn't work. I've prayed before, I know I haven't seen the miracle that I expected. I know what prayer is, and it certainly doesn't do anything. we come to scripture you go I know scripture I've read it from back to front I can read it a thousand times and be familiar with all its peaks and troughs but it has no power because we know how it goes Um, at conference uh, we heard from a believer who had escaped North Korea and he spoke about all the beatings and abuse and persecution he endured and there was this point where um, he encounters some Christian workers, and he talks about reading the Bible hundreds and hundreds of times, but nothing changes in his heart because he'd become familiar with it, because nothing new jumped out, because the Holy Spirit didn't seem to be using it. When we talk to Christians, it is easy to dismiss them. It is really easy for you guys to dismiss me, as I come out on a Sunday morning, um, it is really easy for my wife and kids to go, well you know I'm not sure I'd let that guy lead the church, because I know what he gets up to on Monday night, I know how he behaves when he's grumpy or tired or hungry, when the rest of you who perhaps know me a little more because I'm not kind of, closeted away and only come out uh, to like some sort of fan fairs and uh laser lights on a Sunday morning because you live with something you go who's this Kevin we know that uh he gets grumpy and tired and he makes bad decisions and we can feel that about each other as well I'm not sure about these other people because I know them I live beside them I know that they're always late to home group and that they never go to the prayer meeting and that they don't uh uh Dip in their hand in the pockets to give sort of ties. We know each other, and it is really easy to allow that familiarity to cause us to discount one another, to cause one another to think, you know what? They haven't got any power. They haven't got anything to give. They haven't got anything to offer me. It is really easy to arrive at church meetings and fold our arms and put our feet up, because we've been here before. We've been having church meetings uh, together since 2005. That is a lot of church meetings. And it is easy to allow that familiarity to cause us to come with a bit of nonchalance, with a bit of disrespect. It's a bit of, I've been to a church meeting before, Kevin. It's not, nothing amazing is going to happen today. I know that I come in and I set up the chairs, I talk to the same people, and the same people have got the same problems, and you've still got the same rubbish coffee, and then we have to pull it all down, and then we start again next week. And this familiarity and this uh, mechanics of everyday life can rob us of expectation, can cause us to come in. On the Sunday, and go, where's another meeting to tolerate? Another meeting to uh, survive? Another meeting to uh, hopefully, um, that it'll go quickly so that I can get on with my life after, sort of 12 o'clock. We sing the same songs, we meet with the same people, and we have the same pastor with the same idiosyncrasies. And all of this drains out any expectation any hope in our hearts. And Mark addresses this quite straight in the eye with chapters four, five, and six. He says the kingdom of God looks ordinary at the beginning, but then it does incredible things. The kingdom of God, when it meets an expectant person, looks ordinary, then does incredible things. And when a nonchalant, contemptful a person who would just disregard anything holy as ordinary, they will miss it. If you don't come with expectation, you will miss the opportunity. If you don't come with hope in your heart, then Jesus can only lay his hands on a few people and see a few healings come. The physical elements may indeed be the same, week in, week out, at all the different things we do. But the kingdom of God starts unremarkably. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, always starts unremarkably. It doesn't look anything to begin with. But something happens when God comes, and it flourishes. And so it looks like a seed. It looks like something you would throw away. It looks like something that you wouldn't treasure or make a big fuss of. It looks like an average person standing up the front with T-shirt and jeans. It looks like an average person yawning next to you, uh, thinking of other things. It looks like a normal meeting with um, dodgy audio and visual and a school hall with yellow walls. It looks average, but God comes and transforms everything. powered by the Spirit of God, what God brings is guaranteed to grow. It is guaranteed not to end up looking like a seed. It is guaranteed that at the end you'll have this giant redwood where all the animals of the air will perch in its branches because it is luscious and full and glorious. And so the truth this morning is an invitation to take five. Take five from your jaded cynicism. Take five from your expectations that church can only be this. Take five from your counting up the chairs and realising there's more empty ones than full ones and going, well, God can't be here. Because that's exactly how the kingdom of God starts. So, avoid six... As much as you can. Avoid that familiarity and contempt and ordinariness and lack of expectation and lack of hope and jadedness. Avoid all those instant and very commonsensical appraisals. And remember Jesus is teaching about, in the parables, remember Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Remember that things start really boring and ordinary and unimpressive, but then they flourish into something glorious so this morning i want us to pause and take five not take six but take five take five from our usual complacency and have that ask believe and receive experience that we find in chapter five please bow your heads Heavenly Father, we don't want to manufacture your presence. We don't want to create hype and just all be about style. Lord God, we want you to turn up. And Heavenly Father, as we read Mark's words, we are touched that we can easily write you off. We can easily write your church off. We can easily write your scripture off. We can easily write your people off. And that we just get on with the normal, everyday humdrum of life. Lord God, I thank you that even though the kingdom of God starts like an innocuous-looking seed, it becomes a flourishing giant redwood that is just blessing upon blessing. And Lord God, I pray for each... Uh, of uh, us here that you would spark in us again you would awaken again that sense of expectation and hope that knowledge that you can do amazing things that you do such amazing things through people such as us and Heavenly Father I I pray that as next week we enjoy some baptisms and the week after we enjoy Messy Church, that we would be on the lookout for your hand at work and that we would be full of expectation and hope for you to do incredible things. Heavenly Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.